It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study. This is August 14th, 2008, and you're listening to the Virtual Bible Study live on Thursday night. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you on Thursday night for our regular Internet Bible Study Group. We're glad for the opportunity, and we're glad for all who are listening tonight. It is good to be with you tonight. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to your participation. 877-381-4567 is the telephone number to use. We hope you will use the phone tonight and let us know your thoughts. 877-381-4567. Or you can send your emails to questions at collegeview.com. And our program tonight, Dad, may... Uh, elicit a lot of uh, comments from our listeners. I hope it does. That's what we think makes our program the best when we get a lot of people commenting. So we hope that a lot of people will make the, uh, take the opportunity to either call in or send us an email. We're constantly field, fielding the emails throughout the hour. So if you send one in, hopefully within just a matter of moments, we'll get it on this end and we'll, we'll get you in the mix. We've got several people who've already commented, Jacob. We've, we've chosen a topic for tonight that we think is an important one. One we haven't talked about in a good while, but a very important subject of baptism. Baptism is a Bible doctrine. Obviously, there's a lot of disagreement in the religious world about the subject of baptism. So it's worth discussing, and I think worth discussing fairly often. We probably have neglected it. We probably should have gotten back to it uh, sooner than we have. But uh, I sent out a couple of questions earlier today to our update list. Again, of course, if you want to be on that list, just send us an email, questions at collegeview.com, and put in the subject line, add me to your list. Always on Thursday, we try to send out a, an update to tell people what we're going to be talking about on that evening. And today, earlier today, I sent out these questions. List some things which are not essential, although some people might think they are essential, but things that are not essential for scriptural baptism. Some people have added some requirements, some things that they think are necessary that the Bible doesn't necessarily spell out as being necessary in order to be scripturally baptized. So do you know of some such things? Have you talked with people who maybe have some ideas about some things they want to add as requirements for scriptural baptism? That's question one. And then question number two is list the things that are absolutely essential in order to have scriptural baptism. And we want to get people to give us your feedback. So number one. Things not essential, although some try to add them. Number two, things that must be, things that are, in fact, essential if you're going to be scripturally baptized. We want to talk about both those things. But, Jacob, we might do well to start out by simply talking about the fact that the Bible certainly teaches us to be baptized. Now, this subject of baptism, Dad, is perhaps one of the most polarizing and maybe the greatest lightning rod conversation in the religious world today is whether or not you need to be baptized in order to be saved. And we're not talking about this tonight in order to just... Uh, stir up a lot of, uh, of a fight or to just have a big argument where we can beat each other over the head with the scriptures. We really want to know what do the scriptures teach about this subject. We're convinced that the scriptures teach that baptism is required for salvation. But if you disagree with that, we'd like to hear from you because we do want to go to God's word and find out what he teaches because this is an important subject, Dad. If baptism is required for salvation and we say it's not, then we'll be lost and we'll be guilty of what the Pharisees were guilty of if we say you have to be baptized and the Scriptures don't teach that. So it matters what we believe on this subject. Exactly right. Let's let's go to a few verses that we believe clearly teach that a person to be saved must be baptized. You know, there are a lot of people even who practice baptism who don't think it's necessary for salvation. They practice something they call baptism, but they, they claim you might be saved or could be saved without being baptized. And yet we think the Scriptures are really clear on this. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, he said to his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's what Jesus gave, the instruction he gave to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. And we see them fulfilling the command to teach and to baptize in Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 37, after Peter's uh, sermon, and he convicts those Jews there on that day of Pentecost of their sin and their need for salvation. 
Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's Acts 2.37 and verse 38 of Acts chapter 2. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so the instruction there, Dad, on that first gospel sermon was, How do you get rid of your sins? How are you saved? You need to repent and be baptized. I think really clear. Uh, and, and that echoes what was taught in Mark 16, verse 16. Exactly. You know, the book of Acts is is a book full of conversions of people, people who became Christians, really the first Christians in the very early days of Christianity. And in every single case, there's not an exception. In every single case, those who heard the gospel and responded in obedience were baptized, each one had to be baptized in order to be saved. We believe that the pattern is very clear, as is shown there in the book of Acts. For instance, in Acts chapter 22, uh, the Apostle Paul is retelling his own conversion there and telling about things that happened to him. We know that he saw miraculously saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was told to go into the city of Damascus, and there it would be told him what he should do. Well, when he went into Damascus, a man. Now, we don't believe he was saved on the road to Damascus, and I think there's we've studied that case of conversion many times. I think there's good evidence that he was not saved on the road to Damascus, though he did see and speak to the Lord. When when a man named Ananias came to him in Damascus three days later, uh, Paul, as he's retelling this in Acts 22 verse 16, Ananias said to him, "Now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord." He was still in his sins. He needed to be baptized in order to have his sins washed away. Now, we don't believe the water was what washed away his sins, but it was in the water that he contacted the blood of Jesus and had the remission of sins. He had to be baptized. All right. And we could look at that, as you mentioned, every case of conversion in the book of Acts, uh, we see baptism is included in that, showing the necessity of baptism. If you disagree with us, if you uh, agree with us, we'd like to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. But in the uh, chapter 8 of Acts, Dad, the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, certainly a, a situation there where it wasn't convenient to be baptized. He was riding in a chariot, had a long way to go, and uh, that when they came to water, uh, verse 36 of Acts chapter 8, when they came, and so as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. The eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. The eunuch knew that baptism was necessary, so necessary that he was willing to stop his chariot, go down into the water, and inconvenience himself, Dad, pretty pretty inconvenient there to stop on a dusty road in a chariot to be baptized. And But at the end of that, he went on his way rejoicing, indicating that he had the remission of his sins after that act. And therefore, he was rejoicing. I think exactly right. Another good example of that is in Acts 16. Paul and Silas had been cast into prison, uh, and there was a, um, an earthquake at midnight. The jailer came to him, spoke to them, learned the truth, and he was baptized, it says in Acts 16, verse 33, in the same hour of the night. He took the prisoners out of the prison. Sometime after midnight in the wee small hours of the morning, he was baptized, which I think certainly stresses the urgency of baptism. Why would you do that if it wasn't a necessary thing, necessary for salvation? And then, of course, another really good verse uh, that teaches the need of salvation is 1 Peter 3.21, which says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that verse really puts it all together. Baptism saves us. It's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. In other words, it doesn't have to do with the water washing dirt off the physical body. Rather, it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. When we, with a good conscience from our hearts, sincerely uh, enter into that act, then it is effective to the saving our soul. And what empowers it all, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think it's all right there in First Peter 3.21. And so we see this theme interlaced throughout the New Testament, Dad, that baptism is required for salvation. Back in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, where Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. 
But he that believeth not shall be damned. And then on the first gospel sermon, following the instruction of Jesus, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then as you go on to First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Baptism doth also now save us. And so that theme is repeated throughout the Scripture, Dad. But I want to ask you a question. There's some that would object and would say that when you say that you must be baptized in order to be saved, that you are now introducing a salvation by works, uh, some type of formula, that if some, t- some series of actions that you must do in order to be saved. They might flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 and or long around verse 8. For, grace, for by grace you are saved uh, through faith, that, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And they might look at that passage and say, you're saying we have to be baptized in order to be saved. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says very clearly that we're not saved by works. And so we have a dilemma on our hands. Well, actually, it's not a dilemma. The kind of works that Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 are exactly spelled out. He says they are works whereby we could boast. There's nothing about baptism that merits or earns us our salvation. You could be baptized a million times and you would be no closer to salvation than you were when you started if if you were trying to earn your salvation by meritorious works. Meritorious works don't earn salvation. It's impossible to do so. And so we agree that there are no works of merit and baptism is not a work of merit whereby we could boast of our salvation. That's not the kind of works that will save. There are no such works. There are no meritorious works that would save a person. But there are works of obedience that are necessary, as the Bible clearly links um, faith and works in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 18, James says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works, by our works, by our obedient works. We are showing that we have faith. In fact, James goes on to say in verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So we're not saying there's any works of merit that you could do to earn salvation. Baptism is not such a work. There are no such works. But baptism is a work of obedience that is necessary. And the Bible would would certainly describe uh, other, I mean, uh, faith is a work, confession is a work, repentance is a work, but they are no works that earn salvation. They are works of compliance or obedience, meeting the conditions of God for salvation. If being obedient is a work that is condemned in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, then any act of obedience would be something that would be forbidden by Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Uh, you, loving your neighbor as yourself, Dad, would be a work, and if you can't do any works of obedience in order to be pleasing to God, then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 would rule out loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, it would even rule out faith because in John chapter 6, um, verse 28, John six twenty-eight, they said to him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And he answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Jesus said even faith is a work, but it's not a work of merit. And that's the kind of works that Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 was saying. You can't earn your salvation. We agree. You can't earn your salvation. Baptism will not earn you salvation, but it's a necessary condition in order to have the grace of God and uh, and have salvation. Your interpretation of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 echoes what Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 10, where he said, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And that's what you're saying, Dad, is that when you're when you're obedient in baptism, you're doing what is your duty. You don't you're not some type of superstar servant now or where you want to say, I've earned my salvation. You're doing what was your duty to be obedient to the instructions of Christ. Exactly right. Exactly right. All, all right. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven questions at collegeview dot com. Let's repeat our questions before we go to this first break, Jacob. We got two questions hanging out there. We're going to get to them right after the break. Number one, list some things that are not essential, though some people think they are, some things that are not essential for scriptural baptism. That's number one. Number two, list the things that are absolutely essential for scriptural baptism. All right. If you disagree with us, please give us a call and let us know your thoughts. 877-381-4567. Or send your email to questions at collegeview.com. Take this minute and jump in on the phone or over email tonight. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. 
tonight on Channel 8 WSIN. It's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock. It's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. I'm James Buchanan from Columbia, Tennessee, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And welcome back into the virtual Bible study tonight. As we look at the subject of baptism, and we do want to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. As we talk about uh, the necessity for baptism, we believe it is necessary. You may not believe it is necessary, and we'd like to hear from you. Again, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Let's go to this first question. What are some things that people might want to add as necessary components of baptism, but the Bible doesn't doesn't teach it? We got an email from Steve or Stephen in Pennsylvania, who says I think he didn't kind of get the, the what I was asking for because he said, um, "Notice you said scriptural baptism. Of course, anything that is not scriptural is not essential. Therefore, I will not focus on the things that are not in the Bible, but only on the things that have we have authority for in the Bible." Uh, if others of certain denominations, even Christians themselves, are indicating something that they must believe is necessary but not scriptural, I would rather discuss authority with them before fully immersing myself into the subject of scriptural or spiritual baptism. He says, note, could you tell that I avoided the question because I couldn't think of anything? So I think maybe Stephen didn't get my point, but but he's got another good answer for point two. Uh, our friend Jim in Mount Pleasant, uh, I think he, he hit the nail on the head. I think he clearly did understand what I was asking for. Note, here are some things that Jim says that people might want to add as necessary components of scriptural baptism. Running water. I've known of people who believe that. They believe that people in the Bible were only and always baptized in flowing water. Now, I don't think you can prove that. I, I, just, I just don't think that that's a, a provable point. Uh, we're going to talk about, for instance, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. He was at a, apparently at a sort of an oasis uh, in in the desert of Gaza. Well, probably not flowing water. The Jews who were baptized in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, probably not baptized in flowing water. I don't think you can conclude that every person who was ever baptized in the New Testament was baptized in running water. There are some who want to claim that. Um, Jim goes on to add clear water, fresh water, a baptistry, and a huge artistic picture of the River Jordan behind the baptistry. Of course, many church buildings have that. A lot of people have chosen to paint such murals behind the baptistry for effect, I suppose. But uh, I never knew anybody who who said the mural was necessary, but some people think it's very important to have such decorations. Uh, On all those things about water, I think it's clear that the Bible doesn't specify uh, any specific water. Some people, for instance, want to go over to the to the so-called Holy Land these days and be baptized in the Jordan River. They think there's something special about being baptized in the Jordan River. And those who've been over there tell me that that it's a big tourist thing to do to go to the Jordan River and be baptized as though that somehow makes your baptism more special or more effectual. The Bible doesn't teach that. Now, we, we understand that a lot of people did in Bible times, in the New Testament times, go out to Jordan River to be baptized. But uh, if God required that now, you'd have to think that most people could not be saved because they couldn't get there. Uh, and that would be an, an unfair and an unjust requirement of, of a just God. He wouldn't do such a thing. And, and I just I just think that there is no such requirement. Look at, let's let's mention Acts 8 again, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 8, 
beginning at verse 26, the Lord spake to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south into the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, there usually aren't uh, any flowing rivers or flowing water in a desert. Uh, it says later in the text, they went on their way, they came to a certain water. Some kind of water is the implication. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And the, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both in the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So, again, for all of those things that Jim mentions, and I've heard people make those same arguments that you got to have running, running water, uh, I just don't think that the Bible upholds that as a necessity. He goes on and has some other things that are not necessary, a crowd to witness it. Well, go back to the case of the eunuch and Philip again. Now, some people argue that this this traveling statesman, this this eunuch from Ethiopia, he was a treasurer in the government of Ethiopia. Some people argue that there, he would have had a traveling company with him. We don't know that he did. Uh, there's no indication that there were others there, at least, who witnessed his baptism. And again, that's not spelled out as a requirement. Now, there is no such requirement anywhere stated that there has to be people witnessing what you do. He also says that uh, using a specific phrase, such as, by the power invested in me, I now baptize you. I think that may be what you say when you marry someone, Jim. But yeah, that, that, sounds like, <laughs> that almost sounds like a marriage ceremony, but, but I think Jim's right when he suggests that some people think that there is a specific formula of words that have to be said. We're going to talk more about that. We'll hold that for a minute because some of the other respondents have commented about that. Um, he lists a baptismal garment is not required. Special clothing of some kind. Okay. You know, and maybe some people, I, I suppose that there are in some religious groups, those who would require that, that the candidate to be baptized be dressed in a specific the robe of some kind. Or, yeah, I, I, but again, where would you go to the Bible to, to prove that? And singing a hymn uh, prior to or after the baptism, again, is not uh, required. We oftentimes, we oftentimes do that, but that's a judgment, and it's not it's not a thing that the Bible says is necessary. Thank you, Jim. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Let me add in an email that we just got in from Pat in Harvest, Alabama. Pat says, a thing not necessary is that the baptizer must say certain words, a baptismal formula, or the baptism is not valid. Jim in Mount Pleasant was was hinting at that. Pat has mentioned it. And I might go a little little more detail there. There are some people who think that you have to say, I baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or something of that nature. Usually these are uh, oneness Pentecostals who believe in Jesus only, and they believe that the baptism must be done in the name of Jesus and that a specific set of words must be said and that if the person doing the baptizing didn't say the right words when he baptized you, then your baptism would not be effective. We could go to examples in the book of Acts where different expressions were used. No specific formula was mandated or even do we have an example of a specific set of words being said when people were being baptized? Those Pentecostals that you mentioned have fun when they get to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, observing them, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Uh, they don't like that that passage, but as you mentioned, Dad, we can find other expressions used prior to the baptism and so we have to conclude that uh, the specific phrases uttered before the baptism are not uh, pertinent to the well i think what i think is it's a misunderstanding of in the name of what that means the expression in the name of is an expression that denotes authority and so what we what we have to do is we have to baptize by the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is also identical to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that being the case, that's what we do, not what we say. It's it's not an expression that we use. It's what we're doing, and it's the authority by which we are doing that. Um, as you said, Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, verse 48, it says, uh, Peter, concerning the household of Cornelius, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Now, the Pentecostals, as you said, Jacob, would pose that as a contradiction. Are, are, are those things contradictory? Which one's right? The answer is neither one of those is necessary. In fact, I would take the position 
that the baptizer doesn't have to say anything at all. The person doing the baptism wouldn't have to say anything. He could be absolutely silent in the act of baptizing some person, and the baptism would be effective. If my salvation depends upon the guy baptizing me saying the right thing, that, that puts that puts the effectiveness of my salvation in the hands of another mortal human being, and the Bible simply never does that. And so I take the position, although I don't do it. I mean, if I'm baptizing someone, I explain what I'm doing and the authority by which I do it. But I believe that the baptizer would not have to say anything at all, and it could still be a scriptural baptism. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Jim in Somerset, Kentucky, says that one thing that is not necessary is your parents' permission. He says it is probably a good idea to talk about your spirituality with your parents, but for many young people, the submission to baptism is put off for fear of how a parent might react. We need to remember that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ individually, and we need to, quote, work out our own salvation. Jim's point is is excellent there, and uh, certainly there are some who would be baptized without their parents' endorsement of that activity, but... Uh, what is important is that you submit to the instructions of the Father, and regardless of what your earthly parents might say. Yeah, this really goes to the question of age, sort of age of accountability. When's a person old enough to be baptized? And I'll I tell you something that I heard a long time ago, and I think it makes pretty good sense, and I've repeated it since. For a young person who wants to be baptized, you'll know. You won't have to ask your parents. If, if you're old enough to be baptized, you're, you you will know, and you won't have to ask your parents for permission to do it uh, i think that if a person feels they have to seek their parents permission in order to be baptized it might be an indication that they're not mature enough in order to be able to make that decision for themselves and therefore might be a sign that they are not of such an age to be accountable to be baptized so i think that's a, a, a worthy point all right and number two on his list is he says one of the things that is not necessary is a quote church of christ preacher end quote or an elder or a preacher or an elder at all one of the unfortunate things many people have done is to put as much emphasis on the baptizer as they do on the baptizee. This stakes our salvation on the one who dunks us. It doesn't work that way, he says. Yeah, and I think this is another point that we want to make, and that is that the administ- administrator of scriptural baptism, there, there's no there's no qualifications stated. Um, there's no place in the Bible where you can go and read where it says, you must be baptized by this person, and this person must have such qualifications as these. Actually, if you think about that, if you started putting requirements on the baptizer, the baptizer has to meet certain qualifications. Then think about this. If he has to meet certain qualifications, then you would also say that the person who baptized him had to have had those same qualifications. And then you go back, and the person who had him must have those same qualifications. And you'd have to be able to trace an unbreakable line all the way back to the inspired apostles of Jesus Christ in the first century. Because if any place in that line there was somebody who baptized someone else, but they weren't qualified to do so, then we'd have a breakdown of the whole process and it'd be it'd be impossible. I think that's why, in the wisdom of God, He never placed such requirements on the baptizer. There's no place in the Scripture where you can read of necessary qualifications for the one who is administering baptism. In Acts 22 verse 16, which we already cited, Paul was told, "Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord." Here it would have been a good place for the Lord to insert qualifications of the baptizer. If there were some, there weren't any, and they are not mentioned. So um, I think it's it's important for us to to stress that truth. And I think that, that uh, Jim is on the mark when he says there's no qualification for the baptizer. I think that's a good point. Um, we got another emailer uh, from uh, Garland, and he mentions the same things we were just mentioning and it sort of summarizes them not essential one a formula of words i now baptize you in the name of jesus christ we are baptizing in the name of jesus christ acts eight sixteen. uh for he had not fallen upon any of that they were simply baptized in the name of the lord jesus by his authority so he garland agrees that the expression in the name of the lord jesus or in the name of the father son and the holy ghost is an expression of authority what we're doing whose authority he says it's not essential who baptizes you, and it's not essential where you were baptized. 
Uh, and I think all of those are good points. We appreciate all of our emailers. And we got one that's just come in. Um, Christy, I'm not sure whether it's Christy or Mark. Christy and Mark email in and say an unnecessary, non-essential thing. Some people think or at least wait until a worship service to be baptized. In other words, you got to has to be a special time. No, it doesn't have to be a special time. We mentioned earlier the Philippian jailer was baptized sometime after midnight in the, in the wee small hours of the morning. There's no requirement of time. I think that's a good point. Thank you, Christian Mark. Thank you for that email. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Join in on the discussion now. We are late to get our bullet point for the week. We'll take that now, and we'll hopefully hear from you on the other side. Give us a call or send us an email. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The Virtual Bible Study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. No one likes to be put on the spot. We dread the possibility of being asked questions that we can't answer. This is especially true when the questions are about religion. Without a doubt, one of the biggest hindrances to spreading the gospel is this fear of being asked questions. Many Christians feel uneasy about their level of Bible knowledge. Thus, to avoid potentially embarrassing situations, they do their best to sidestep any discussion that might turn to religious themes. This is sad because it keeps us from many open doors for personal evangelism. Since no one has all the answers, it's important for us to know what to do when questions arise that stump us. Here are some suggestions. First, realize and be ready to explain that there are simply some pieces of information that we do not have because God has not supplied them. Deuteronomy 29:29 says, "The secret things belong unto the Lord our God." But we do have quote, all truth, John 16, verses 12 and 13, and quote, all things that pertain unto life and godliness, Second Peter 1, verse 3. So every piece of essential information has been supplied. Secondly, when you do not know the answer, it is best to simply admit it. This is much better than trying to bluff your way through. Humbly say, quote, I don't know. But do not fail to add, quote, I'll find out and get back to you on that. Following this procedure will actually provide additional opportunities to teach. It keeps the door open to further discussions. Thirdly, study. Then study some more. And finally, study more than that. You'll feel less intimidated and more willing to engage in biblical discussions if you build your confidence level by increasing your Bible knowledge. Pay special attention to areas where you presently feel weak in knowledge and understanding. Be well prepared to deal with popular doctrinal errors. Be ready to explain the issues that divide brethren. And finally, never shy away from a chance to talk about God and His Word. The more you do this, the easier it will become. Every such conversation serves as an opportunity for you to sharpen your sword. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, my name is Kent Bumgardner. My family and I love to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. Please join us. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The Virtual Bible Study continues. And you are listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us on our website, collegeview.com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com. If you have any questions about what we believe or practice, give us a call or send us an email anytime. We'd love to hear from you. We do want to remind you, if you're listening live, you should be seeing video if you have a quick Internet connection. If you are listening in the archive version, you won't see that video, but uh, do try and catch us live if you'd like to see what you're hearing. Yeah, we've got a, vi- we've got a video stream going as well. We also think that we have made some progress in making it possible for those with slow dial-up connections to hear just the audio. <clears throat> we've got one emailer who's saying he's having trouble hooking up tonight and we're not exactly sure where where, where the breakdown ends and he's not being able to connect to the program uh, but hopefully we can we'll work do, on that we'll, with him and hopefully yeah. get him fixed up yeah if you have any problems listening to us live though do please let us know uh that your problems so that we can work on addressing those and your makeup looks good again tonight dad no makeup tonight it doesn't help it doesn't help i've told you before it doesn't help okay let's go to our second question jacob the second Did you get wade's question on number one Oh, I didn't. He's on the. Uh, let me get him to get weighed while we're while we're before we go on. Not essentials, he says. Saying, "I now baptize you in the name oh, of no, Jesus Christ." I'm sorry, that's the one I just did, Jacob. That's you did do what? I, I did weighed, and I said it was Garland. I, I read. I read you did wrong. not read Garland's in Garland. Uh, uh, yeah, we, that one that I just read was weighed, and you read Garland for us. Well, Garland got shortchanged. Garland says. The not necessary things are a preacher to do the baptizing, even a Christian to do the baptizing, or a male to do the baptizing, a particular phrase to be spoken by the baptizer, or a baptizer standing in the water. 
He has heard objections to the, quote, dry minister baptistry based on Philip going down into the water with the eunuch. Yeah. We've talked about these several of these things, and I agree with Garland on you don't have to have a preacher. And I think it's shocking for, to hear this, but I agree with Garland. I don't think you have to have a Christian baptize you. And I don't even think you'd have to have a man baptized necessarily. There are no qualifications of the baptizer. If there were, if again, think if I had to have a Christian baptize me, then he'd have to prove that he was baptized by a Christian. And then the person, that person, then you just have to keep tracing back generation after generation all the way to the first century to make sure everybody in that chain was baptized by someone who was a Christian. Or else, if you if if 500 years ago somewhere in that chain, someone was bab someone got baptized by someone who wasn't a true Christian, then the whole thing would break down. That it's an, it would make it unmanageable. God in His wisdom didn't make such requirement. Now, Garland Garland concludes. The main point I wanted to make was that the New Testament attributes no significance to the person doing the immersing. The focus is entirely on the subject, not the administer. I think that's exactly right. I, now, given my druthers. I'd have a Christian man doing the baptize. If I had my druthers, that's what I would do. That's what we typically do. But I'm saying you couldn't enforce that as a law because the New Testament never specifies that as a law. One one thing there, and he mentions no no specific phrase. Garland mentions no specific phrase has to be said. He also mentions, and I've seen this too, in some places where there are very limited facilities, they may have a tank of water big enough for the bab, baptismal candidate to be in the water but the one who actually immerses him is actually outside the water. Some people have a problem with that, although there again, I think they're adding to the scripture. I don't think you could, I don't think you can do that. Now, in the case of Philip and the eunuch, certainly they both went down in the water. There's no doubt about that. And again, typically that's what we do. But I'm not sure that you could enforce that as a rule because again, that would put some requirement or, or some qualifier on the one doing the act. And as Garland rightly deduces, I think all the focus is on the subject, not the administrator. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. We're going to go on now to talk about things that are necessary for baptism. If you think that baptism isn't necessary at all, then you would think there's nothing necessary for baptism. Perhaps let us know your thoughts, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. And we got one email that we're holding in reserve, our friend, Patrick has sent in an email, and he's going to disagree with us on a number of these points. And we're going to try to devote the last segment of the program to him. Patrick, if you're listening, don't worry. We're going to get to your emails. He disagrees with us, and that's fine. We don't mind disagreement. We like to to investigate those things in which even people might disagree with us. But we're going to get to that email in just a minute. Um, But let's talk about, um, well, one more. One more email just come in. This might not fit in as a non-essential. The emailer says, I have heard that some people wait until the spring when the river is flowing to have a mass baptism. Also, they have to wear some special clothes, baptismal clothing. Uh, have you heard of, uh, have you heard of other reasons where people put off being baptized? Yeah, some people put off baptism because they don't think it's essential to salvation. In other words, you could have a mass baptism in the spring if you didn't think it was urgent for people to be baptized. And so all winter long, you're saving up people who are going to be baptized in the spring. Because the, the, the argument of those who do that typically is they're saved when they believe and they're baptized at some point later just to show that they're saved. And that's not biblical. Save, well, it would be a lot more convenient in the spring when the water's a little warmer and you don't have to bust the ice off of it. But the uh, eunuch didn't wait until it was... The Philippian jailer didn't wait. Yeah. They did it in the same hour of the night. Because they understood that baptism was urgent and necessary for their salvation. You wouldn't put it off till spring if you believed it was necessary for your salvation. So I think that's, I think that, that the observations are accurate. That's what some people do, but I don't think it's right. All right. Thank you for that email tonight. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Things that are absolutely necessary for scriptural baptism. Stephen in Pennsylvania says, now we're talking. First, we must have desire. This comes before anything because we need to have a desire to hear the word. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it states that the Lord is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we are diligently seeking God, then we will get a chance to hear the gospel. For example, someone may desire to have the true knowledge made known to them regardless of what they have been taught. Then we hear the word of God, and if we accept and believe it, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, then we must have a desire to follow his word and abide in it. The Lord describes us 
or the Lord desires us to be desirous of him. When Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 states, not willing that any should perish, speaking of God there, if we have that desire, then we will repent and confess Jesus and then be baptized. Another thing we need to have is love for God. My mother makes quilts, lots and lots and lots of them. If she made you a quilt and you would not allow her to give you the quilt, not only would you insult her, but you would fail to recognize the effort and love put into that quilt so that it would keep you warm and during the winter. If someone does something for you out of love, then you should recognize it and accept it, thereby showing your love for them by allowing their love to come to you. Likewise, God sent his Son out of love so we can have the gift of salvation, John chapter 3, verse 16. I would have said fear also, but fear only lasts for a short period of time. Then what drives us to continue obedience is love, such as a child who has a fear of punishment. But as a child grows old enough to the point where mom and dad can't do anything, they are obedient rather out of love. Another thing we need is our is sin in our lives. This may seem ridiculous to state since we have all sinned, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, but I'm speaking more about the awareness of sin. If we do not have the awareness that we are in sin, then we cannot comprehend what baptism does for us and what actually occurs during the baptism. He references Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If we cannot understand that we are in sin needing salvation through baptism, then we have failed to understand the word of God in its entirety. There are people that are arrogant enough to state that they have lived perfect lives, but those of us who have knowledge understand that only Jesus lived a sinless life. All right, I, real quickly, I want to comment on the thing Stephen said. Basically, he says we've got to have the right motive. We've got to have a desire for salvation. We've got to have a love for God. I think he's exactly right. Romans six seventeen says, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Actually, interesting, earlier in that same chapter, he talked about baptism, being buried with Christ in baptism. So baptism has to come from the heart. It's not just the physical act. It's not just getting dunked in water. You've got to have the right motive. I would absolutely agree with him about that. And part of that motive needs to be the understanding of our sinfulness, that we are lost sinners and we need salvation. Uh, a person who is not being baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, is not being baptized for the right reason. You have to know you're a sinner and in need of, of salvation. So I think Stephen is right on those points. All right, Jim in Mount Pleasant says, Things that are necessary, belief that Jesus is the Christ, having confessed that Jesus is the Christ, having repented of your sins, going down into the water, being immersed in the water, that is, being buried in the water, and coming up out of the water. Although many don't think of this last part, it is very essential, or else we stop at the middle point, <laughs> such as remaining buried in the water, which might not bring about the desire. Well, that'd, desire be, that'd be drowning, wouldn't it? That's, yeah, that'd be taking it literally that you're yeah. dying to, uh, to your old man. And then uh, much water, enough to baptize the person, since sprinkling is unscriptural, you will need a lot. And being such a, of such an age that A, B, and C are possible, that being belief, confession, and repentance. I think, I think Jim is exactly right. Basically, he is listing the, the steps in the plan of salvation. Baptism is a part of the plan of salvation, but it's not the whole of the plan of salvation. It's a part. It's a step. They are prerequisite steps. You have to hear the truth. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You have to believe the truth. Hebrews eleven six, without faith it's impossible. Please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You have to be willing to confess your faith in Jesus. Romans ten ten says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You have to repent of your sins. Luke thirteen three, Jesus said, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then having done all those things, you are baptized for the remission of sins, as we already cited Acts 2.38. Those things are necessary. Think about it now. What if a person didn't believe in Jesus and you're going to baptize him? What's the use? You could baptize him, but he doesn't believe. It's not going to save his soul. By the same token, what if someone wouldn't confess their faith in Jesus? Well, why would you baptize them if they're unwilling to verbally confess their faith in Jesus? Or for that matter... What if a person's engaged in sinful activity and they won't repent of it? Let's say we've got somebody who's a drunk or an, uh, and he won't repent of his drunkenness. He intends to continue drinking his alcohol and being drunk. There's no use baptizing him if, he's, if, if he is in advance saying, I won't quit doing these sinful things. So all those things are necessary prerequisites of scriptural baptism. They, they have to be in place in order for baptism to be scriptural. I think Jim is exactly right. I think also we could stress um, uh, from his email that baptism is immersion. It requires much water in John chapter 3, verse 23. 
when John the Baptist was baptizing, that was, was his baptism, it was the baptism of John, so we're not baptized with the baptism of John, but we're just talking about the physical act that he was engaged in. In John 3.23, it says, John was baptiz- baptizing in Enon near to Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. There was much water in Enon. Uh, so that's why John chose that as a place to do his baptizing. In Acts 8, we already referenced several times the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Acts 8, 38 and 39, they went down both into water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, and they were come up out of the water. They went into the water. The baptism took place. They came out of the water, I think, clearly specifying an immersion. We believe in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Notice the wording. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12 says, buried with him in baptism. Baptism is immersion. I think Jim is right on that point. And quickly, Wade says that uh, the essentials are enough water to immerse. He references Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The Greek word baptizo is rightly translated to immerse. The transliteration into English has deceived many Wade notes. And number two, the right attitude must be present. He notices in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but a, an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He references the conscience there, uh, that meaning that our attitude is correct before God. And then number three in Wade's list, he says, there must be an attitude of repentance present. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He notices the repentance there in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as being a prerequisite, and we do appreciate Wade for those comments. We're going to go on. I think he's exactly right. We're going to go on and take a break, and when we come back, we'll go to the top of the hour. We're going to look to an email from an objector, and if you object to what we've said so far on the program tonight, we do hope you will join in. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. We'll go to the top of the hour right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's Word taught every Thursday night. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study. We're looking forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. And now that much-awaited email, Dad, from the objector. We, uh, our friend Patrick, and I think Patrick's he's down in Alabama someplace, isn't he, Jacob? As I, I recall, he is, yeah. Uh, maybe around Birmingham. I'm not exactly sure. But uh, he often listens and... and uh, comments during the virtual bible study has often has very many good comments i've really appreciated some of his thoughtful comments he disagrees with us tonight and we're we're open to disagreement uh, and glad that he feels that he can send this in patrick and i know he will not object to me saying so patrick is a catholic and his viewpoints are going to come from a catholic perspective so when he said when we said list some things that are not essential for scriptural baptism the first thing he says now notice this he says the first thing that is not essential is immersion he says, baptism by immersion is not necessary 
Insisting on baptism by immersion only is insisting upon something about which no specific instruction is given. Ezekiel does seem to prophesy about baptism in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, in the context of other things the Messiah will accomplish, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my... I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So if you want a biblical text showing mode, here's one, and it uses the word sprinkle. The earliest known written record does contain specific instruction that does contain specific instruction is the didactic, dated somewhere between 70 and 100 A.D. I think that's a little early, but maybe I'll grant that. It shows that pouring is an alternative method to immersion when water is scarce. And then he cites a reference for reading that. Um, I disagree with his interpretation of Ezekiel. He said Ezekiel chapter 36, um, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 is a messianic prophecy. I do not think that it is. I think that here the prophet is talking about the Lord restoring his people uh, from the captivity because he goes on to say, he, he says, um, the verse just before the one we read, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of the countries and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle you, uh, sprinkle clean water in you and you shall be clean. There were, there were rites of purification under the law of Moses. We know that they were going to be cleansed by the rites of purification. He says, in verse 28, the verse that immediately follows the one that Patrick referenced, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I'll be your God. Ezekiel 36 there is not a messianic prophecy the prophet was not talking about what the Messiah would do Uh, he was talking about what he would do in restoring his people from the captivity and the sprinkling of water there does not have anything to do with New Testament baptism and so I think uh, unfortunately well unfortunately or not Patrick's proof text doesn't doesn't carry weight he says there's no information about immersion in the new testament we just cited several passages that show that new testament baptism is by immersion uh we referenced john the baptizer baptizing in enon because there was much water there uh the eunuch and philip both going down in the water in order to be baptized romans 6 3 and colossians 2 12 calling baptism a burial and it is symbolic of christ's burial and death burial and resurrection and it, it, it our baptism echoes that and, and is a symbol of that as well. Exactly right. So again, I And the Greek word itself. Baptizo, Baptizo. Means, to, means to immerse. To immerse. Exactly. So he, they were immersing them is what the Greek literally says. Uh, Patrick goes on in his things that he says that are not necessary. He says an age of reason is not necessary. We would say that you have to be old enough to believe, repent, and confess before your baptism he says that's not necessary. He, he says, quote, infants who cannot yet make decisions for themselves can be baptized just as Hebrew infants could be circumcised when they were eight days old. And we would have to agree that Hebrew children were circumcised as infants, but we are dealing with two different covenants there. And we are in a new covenant now, and that is explained in Hebrews chapter 8. Beginning of verse 10, for this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and will write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The difference in the new covenant and the old, right, the old covenant, you were born into it. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that. And so the Hebrew children would be circumcised as infants because they were born into a relationship with God. And they had no choice in the matter. But now in the, in the new covenant, that is something where we have to know the Lord. Otherwise, we don't have a relationship with We know with the him. Lord and we make a choice. And so you have to be old enough to be informed in order to make that choice. And so age of consent is necessary for scriptural baptism. You have to be old enough to be taught. You have to be old enough to understand sin. You have to be old enough to confess. You have to be old enough to repent. And all those things would indicate that an age of reason is necessary. Otherwise, Hebrews chapter 8 would be invalid because at some age, then you would have to be told, know the Lord. Exactly right. Uh, Patrick goes on to say another thing not necessary is Jesus' name or Jesus-only baptism. We already commented about that. He references Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, and I think he would agree with us, although he may he may believe that you have to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't believe you have to say anything. I believe he does if we go on in his list. Yeah, he, he says... Uh, uh, 
Uh, are you? What are you looking at, Jacob? Under his things that are essential. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, again, I would argue that there is no formula of words else. My salvation is dependent upon the baptizer doing his work accurately, and, and the Lord hasn't made that that way. And we don't see any consistent formula of words ever used in baptism. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or baptism in the name of Jesus, it's all describing the authority by which we do our baptize. All right. Uh, we appreciate Patrick for his, uh, his comments tonight. Uh, he says things that are absolutely essential for baptism. He says water. Baptism must be conferred with water. This is clear in several passages, but as Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say unto you, lest one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Also, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I agree with him. We've got to, have, we've got to be baptized in water. Water is the element. He says the Holy Spirit is vitally important. He says, I mention this not because this is somehow essential to the correct administration of baptism, at least on the part of man, but I mention this because, as the above two passages mention, a correct understanding of baptism is that a person receives the Holy Spirit in baptism. I actually disagree with that. I believe uh, uh, John 3, verse 5, that you're born of water and the Spirit means that the, the water is the is the element of baptism. Spirit is the teaching that accompanies that baptism. Uh, also in Acts 2.38, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not, my understanding of that is that it's not the giving of the Spirit himself, but something that the Spirit gives us, which is salvation. So uh, I, we, we might talk about that sometime. That's not really uh, exactly connected to our discussion tonight. All right, he says, uh, he notes the correct formula, quote, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He uh, says he, that is he necessary. That is important. He says that there is a necessary. But you've formula. shown that there were other statements made. Yeah. Besides we, that identical statement. That's right. We what did we reference there in Acts ten forty eight? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. That was Peter at the house of Cornelius. Uh, I don't believe you can prove any specific formula words. I, again, I'm going to if if somebody would like to challenge me on this, I'm I'm taking the position the baptizer would not have to make a peep, not one word, not and a email sound. addresses questions, questions at, at college. <laughs> All right, uh, quickly, we're running out of time. Uh, Patrick says the right understanding or intention of baptism is as a necessity. There must be at least a basic understanding and intention to do what the church intends by baptism. I know of two churches whose baptism the Catholic Church rejects as being invalid, that of the Jehovah's Witnesses and that of the Mormons. The baptism of Jehovah's Witnesses is invalid because they have a completely different understanding of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They understand that there is one God who exists in one person, God the Father. The Son is understood as to be a created being. Michael the Archangel, and the Holy Spirit is understood to be an impersonal force. In the case of the Mormons, they actually believe in three distinct gods called the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Both of these belief systems reject the orthodox belief of one God who exists in three persons. Now, he says that it is important to understand the intention or understand baptism in order to have a valid baptism why is that necessary if you can be baptized Early, in Earlier we were just reading where he says age of reason is not necessary. If you didn't even have to know, because in other words, he's defending infant baptism. An infant certainly wouldn't understand the purpose of baptism. If they're baptized and don't understand the purpose of it and it's okay, then why wouldn't it be okay for someone coming from the Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, or Mormon religion? Ba- who baptized Although they them. didn't understand the reason they were baptized, why wouldn't it work for them? And then he goes on to, to say... Uh, the following assume that a person is of age of reason. And then he says you'd have to have faith and you'd have to have the right disposition. Uh, one who has sinned must repent of his sin in order to, to partake of baptism uh, and so forth. And we're almost out of time. But but again, those prerequ- we agree now. I would agree you have to have faith and the right disposition. I agree that's true for every scriptural candidate of baptism. The, the the thing we disagree very strongly about with Patrick is the idea that infants could be baptized there's not any place in the scripture that authorizes inf- infant baptism. There's not a single example of infants being baptized in the New Testament. Uh, again, if you disagree with that, we'd be glad to address that more thoroughly when we have more time. But, uh, but what you're saying is uh, Patrick's arguing it from both sides of the fence there. To it, say that, it seems yeah. to me that Pat, and I really appreciate Patrick. And I appreciate his participation in our program from time to time. And, and I appreciate the way he expresses himself. But. I think he's being inconsistent there. Uh, he's saying at one point age of reason is not necessary, and later he's saying reason is necessary. 
Yeah, we do appreciate Patrick for his comments. Yeah, exactly. We don't want him to take what we're saying the wrong way. We just we disagree. Yeah, and, and Patrick, we, we'd like to talk some more about it. Yeah, too. we can talk more about it. We have in the past talked about infant baptism, but that's certainly something we need, can investigate again. Well, a good conversation, Dad. Appreciate all of our I think listeners. An important for subject. We appreciate everybody who got involved in discussing those it, matters of baptism. And tonight. it is important because we're talking about our eternal salvation here. So we need to know what God says about the important subject of baptism, and we understand what He says by simply looking to His word and reading it and and uh comprehending what he said because it's very clear baptism is required for salvation exactly right all right if you have any questions or comments about what we said again we would welcome a discussion with you give us a call throughout the week you can call leave a message if you don't get an answer at 877-381-4567 or send an email 24 hours a day we'll look forward to hearing from you questions at collegeview.com thank you for your participation tonight dad thank you jacob and thank if Thanks to everybody who's listening tonight. All right. We encourage you to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.